The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. What I would like to talk about this morning is anxiety and the Dharma. And this may seem like a strange topic, but what has happened is that lately I've become very aware of how many people are experiencing anxiety. Uh, I've, been le- I've been mentoring this online meditation course, and out of uh, 17 students that I've been mentoring every week, I would say over half of them have referred to the fact that they have been anxious or they've been treated for anxiety or that anxiety keeps them from meditating. That's a really significantly large number. Also, I have family and friends who complain about anxiety. And when I say complain, I don't say that in a denigrating way. I think they really suffer from anxiety. So... um, so that's caused me to think about what, what does this mean? Now, there's, there's certainly cause for concern in terms of reflection about what are the causes of anxiety and why is there so much anxiety in the world. But it's not really what I want to talk about. What I really want to talk about is what is the experience of anxiety and how can we alleviate suffering? Because that's our goal. You know, the, the Four Noble Truths re- refer to suffering, the causes of suffering, the end of suffering, and the path to the end of suffering. So how can we relate that to what we're living in our everyday life? So that's what I'd like us to consider. And what I'd like to do is, is kind of set the stage for how I'd like to think of it as an experience, and then open it up and have a, a broader discussion, because this group is really good at that. <laughs> so, so here we go. So... so What does it mean to be anxious? How does anxiety feel? Really, what is the experience of anxiety? Lately, I've asked a lot of people that question, and there seem to be some themes that arise. But mostly people seem to talk about mind states of anxiety. They don't spend very much time talking about how anxiety feels in the body. They don't talk about, my hands get sweaty, my heart beats, although sometimes they say that. So it leads me to think that there are kind of maybe two main flavors of anxiety. There's the anxiety that has a strong emotional content, where there's kind of a wave, a sense of overwhelmingness. And there's the kind of anxiety that is more of a mind state, where we're sort of uh, uh, ready a certain readiness, you know, where you're, you're, the anxiety is looking for what might happen. Uh, so there are kind of two different ways that I'm thinking about it. This is not meant to be meant to be exhaustive. <laughs> this is just my thoughts as they're coming along. So sometimes there seems to be an urge to be better, for things to be better, for me to be better. I can't live up to this being better. That, so there's, there's a, uh, an element of self-judgment that arises, a lot of self-judgment. This, this is not good, I'm not good, I should be better, I can't do. And a fear that we'll never be good enough. Now all of us have a, some fears as we go through our lives, and some feelings of anxiety but I think this, what people call major anxiety is much larger, and, and there, there really is kind of an overwhelming feeling to it. Just not good enough, just not able. Somewhere in the story of anxiety is a feeling of hopelessness, of hopeless incompetency. I can't prevent this from happening, or I can't control this, or I can't, I can't. There's an I can't feeling. So... Um, so there are kind of, I've kind of divided these things up into just three main areas. So one of them is uncertainty. How we deal with uncertainty and how we experience uncertainty I think leads to a, uh, some definition within anxiety. So there's, there's a, a, a loss of control with uncertainty. When things are very uncertain, we can't plan our way into them. You know, it's just nothing's going to work. So, so holding that uncertainty can be quite difficult. 
Sometimes self-esteem is tied to the need for control. If I can't make this happen, I'm, I'm bad. I, I should be able to do this. And so self-esteem suffers. It's beyond my ability. So there's a consciousness that I, I can't do, I can't do. And it can be quite overwhelming, a sense of responsibility. You know, what is that kind of funneling in feeling that happens? Sometimes it's a matter of feeling that there are just too many things happening. That overwhelming feeling is not so much the largeness of what's happening as that just too many things happening. I can't keep track of all of them. Sometimes it has to do with an attachment to outcome. In order for things to be good, this has to be true. So there's a kind of setting something up, and if I can't make that happen, then I'm a failure. Because that's, that's what needs to happen. That outcome is the only really good, good thing. If I can't make that happen, it's not good enough. Or maybe another side of that is, I've set everything up, and it didn't happen, so I was wrong. And the sense of not being able to control the outcome is experienced that way. And we'll kind of come back to some of these things, so I'm just kind of giving an idea to you of the responses I've gotten from people when I've asked them about anxiety. One of the interesting ones is that people respond with a sense of paralysis. You know, it's kind of the the deer-in-the-headlight feeling. And I've had that feeling, you know, that I'm in a situation and all of a sudden... I just can't move. I just can't move. There's, it, just, it isn't that I can't, I can't even think of anything. It isn't that I don't know what to do. It's more like I can't. It's just a, a total stopping. Nothing can be done feeling. And I've seen that in some people close to me recently, so it's, it's, um, it's really strong. And th- there's a, a sense of not being safe, of things not being secure there's a kind of unmooring that happens. You know, you're, you're, you're tooling along, everything seems fine, and all of a sudden, it's like uh, you've been hit from behind. I was recently hit from behind in my car, so I know what this feeling is like. And all of a sudden, all the safety has gone away, and you just feel like you've been shifted, and everything seems a little shaky again, you know, this, this unmooring feeling that happens. Or some major catastrophe happens in your life, and... And it's kind of a surprise. And you're moved off your pattern. You're moved off your plan. This, this unmooring feeling. Sometimes we refer to it as being pulled out of our comfort zone. You know, we're moved off where we feel comfortable. So, so the, the, there's uncertainty, there's paralysis, there's the sense of the unknown, which is a little different than uncertainty. The unknown is just not being able to feature what comes before. It's a very human thing to want to, to move forward. And not being able to feature it uh, uh, is, is really difficult. We're afraid of making a mistake. We're afraid of the consequences of our mistakes. Um, we, we set up a, a threat barrier. You know, humans have evolved to be able to respond to threats. You know, that's how we got away from the saber-toothed tigers, right? We, we, we set up vigilance. And the amount of vigilance we set up, we sort of equate with security. So if our vigilance isn't good enough, what happens to security? So, so there's this sense that I've, I've set up things to, to work, and I'm safe behind this, and then the wall is breached. And then it's unknown, because we've, we've made that wall, that, 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 uh, that place of security, and now it's been breached. The unknown can be quite frightening. Sometimes it's just a lack of the familiar. You know? I get pretty used to the way I feel. This is how it's going, you know? I recently uh, went on a vacation um, to an island where things were very different than they are here. 
And I was surprised at how much effort it took just to sort of walk down the street. Everything was unfamiliar. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know where to find. You know, where's the grocery store? How do I get milk? (laughs) And all of that sort of edged up the uneasiness in me. You know, the lack of the familiar. There also seems to be a little piece of loneliness and anxiety. Uh, where we kind of lose our sense that somebody else is there to help us. We lose our sense of connection to other people, and we feel very isolated. So maybe isolated is a little better word that that kind of shows up when people talk about anxiety. So someone, uh, I have a few quotes here from a friend of mine who's just said some wonderful things lately. So this is one of Dan's things. He says, loneliness is the absence of other, and aloneness is the presence of oneself. I thought, wow, that is really great. Loneliness is the absence of other, and aloneness is the presence of oneself. Which kind of brings me to the place with, where we start talking about how, how can we work with anxiety? How, can we, how do we experience all of these aspects of anxiety, and what does that mean as we try to eliminate suffering in our lives or lessen or ease or make it a little less with us? How do we practice with anxiety? So so what I would like to suggest is that being with the experience of anxiety, all of these various ways that anxiety manifests itself has to do with the practice of being with what is true. So, you know, when we talk about uh, how, do we, how, do we, how do we let go of those things that are causing suffering, we talk about the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path has, you know, these, it's our prescription for how do we deal with suffering and how do, we, uh, how do we give up suffering. And there are, an, uh, of these eight things, you can kind of, kind of divide them into three areas. One is, is the wisdom section, and it has to do with right view and uh, right intention. Right view and right intention. And then there's a section that has to do with more action things. We have right speech, uh, right action, right livelihood. And then there's the meditation section that has to do with concentration, mindfulness, and right effort. So if we say those are kind of the, the tools that we have to work with, what is going to apply to anxiety, to all these feelings of anxiety? What comes up? How do we apply these tools to eliminate suffering, to let go of suffering. So I'm suggesting that one of the places that seems most likely to help is in that wisdom section that has to do with right view. Are we seeing things? How are we seeing things? And intention, what is our intention when we see what we see? So, so in looking at that, I thought there, there are kind of several things that we can do. One is that we notice it. First, we have to notice what comes with the anxiety. It was interesting to me when I asked people, how did they know they were anxious? This seemed to be a really difficult question. How do you know you're anxious? Well, I'm anxious. I know I'm anxious. But what is the experience of anxiety? What do you see? What do you feel? Often there's a, uh, a contraction in anxiety. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, let me list the four things, and then I'll give you an example. So noticing what causes contraction or defensive postures or you know, the pushing away, whatever, whatever the, the reaction is to the anxiety-causing thing. What is, what is it that, you know, what do you do? How do you feel, and what do you do in response? Notice that. The second is willingness to stay with the suffering, and I'll have a lot to say about that. Staying in the room. 
which has to do with not going into the past, not going into the future, not going into plans, but staying in the room. And the fourth one is reflecting on what else is here. So those are the four things that I think might shed some light on on anxiety and our experience of anxiety. What causes contraction or defensive postures? What's there? The willingness to stay with what is there. Staying in the room so that we don't build up the story about it from the past or what, you know, what has happened or what might happen. And fourth, reflecting on what else is here. So those are the four ways that I'd like to look at this. So I'll give you a, a, a quick example. This morning I woke up and it was pouring rain. And I was up in Marin. I live up by Point Reyes Station. And it's normally about an hour and a half drive to here. But I woke up, it's pouring rain. I'm thinking, okay, rain. First day after a three-day holiday, traffic is going to be miserable on 101. I better get going. So I decided to leave early, and I gave myself two hours and 15 minutes to get here. Seemed pretty generous on an hour and a half trip, right? Well, traffic was crummy. (laughs) And I realized that I was thinking of, I was becoming anxious around this. And how did I know I was becoming anxious? Well, I was doing my usual gripping the steering wheel. But also, I was kind of pulling the steering wheel toward me. (laughs) I mentioned this gripping the steering wheel in this this group a few weeks ago, and and I said something about loosening my fingers, loosening my grip from the steering wheel, and someone was concerned that I'd stop driving using the steering wheel. So I'll tell you what I did was... I loosened, I didn't remove my hands from the steering wheel. And that's when I noticed that, that I was actually pulling back on the steering wheel. I was in a hurry to get to where I was going. You know, there was this feeling. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And then I noticed that my jaw was really tight. And I said, okay. So here I am going 20 miles an hour on 280 in pouring rain. And there's really a lot of traffic. But the truth is, and my intention is to be on time, and to arrive not feeling too jangly. So I have a couple of intentions. The conditions for what's happening have all been set. The time I left has already happened. The rain is happening. The traffic is happening. I cannot affect any of these conditions that are giving rise to my anxiety. What I can affect is how I experience those conditions and what's happening now. So I realized that I could continue trying to think of ways for what was true to not be true. Well, if I'd taken another route, or maybe I should have, or maybe I could you know, scoot over to that lane, and maybe it's going a little faster over there, or... or I could worry about, well, what's going to happen when I come in late? They're all going to be sitting there, and they're going to wonder, nobody's shown up this morning. You know, all these things. But the conditions are not going to change. The conditions are there. So staying with just the conditions as they are, I softened into that, and I didn't have to stay with that. I was able to just say, okay, the conditions are the conditions, and I'll either be on time or I won't be on time. As it turns out, I was early, so that was great. But that didn't stop me from being anxious on the way. But it did have a lot to do with what were my intentions for being present with the moment? How was I reacting to those conditions? Was I willing to stay with the conditions? Was I willing to admit that I was anxious? You know, good Buddhist teacher isn't going to be anxious. Was I willing to admit that into the car with me and realize that's why my hands were gripping the steering wheel the way they were? Okay, so so the first one is noticing the willingness to stay with discomfort. The willingness to stay with discomfort. So I talked to this absolutely um, remarkable person last week who was a young man, a physicist in Germany, and... uh, he, had, he said, I really had this great experience this week. And he was someone who told me that he'd experienced a lot of anxiety. 
He said, I was sitting, I was sat down to meditate, and I was very anxious and very restless. I was so restless, and I, I just thought, I'm not going to be able to sit today, I'm too restless. And so he said, I thought about trying to just stay with it. And I started to study the restlessness, and I realized that, that it was just getting bigger. So, so then I said to myself, okay, I'm restless. And he said it was like the earth moved. To finally just tell himself he was restless, to admit that he was restless, and not have to change the fact that he was restless, was a source of liberation for him. It was just amazing. It's a difficult thing to talk about if you haven't actually experienced that, where you're with something that's uncomfortable, and everything in you wants to change that what is uncomfortable to something that is comfortable. And to realize that you can be with that need to change it, with that desire to change it, and just watch it. Just watch it. You know, one of the questions is is it okay to be uncomfortable? You know, when I'm uncomfortable, the first thing I do is I think about how I'm going to fix it. You know, my knee's a little tight, maybe I'll move it over this way. But very often, I'm sure you've had this experience, when I sit, I have, my alarm clock goes off at 30 minutes. At 30 minutes, I know the 30 minutes are up. My knees want to quit. But what I found is if I look at what is happening in my knee and study what the feel is in the knee and how it's moving and where it's going, and the need to change it changes. It doesn't necessarily go away, but it changes and the next thing I know, no, I've gone to 45 minutes, and I'm wondering how I got to 45 minutes. It isn't grin, gritting, gritting your teeth and stuff, stuffing yourself through the experience. It's really just the way you hold the experience, the willingness to be with what is uncomfortable. Now, I'm not talking about something... Um, one of the things I did on my vacation is I went snorkeling. I love to snorkel, but I'm terrified of water. So every time I get into the water, I have to overcome a little bit of fear. And then I'm in the water for a while, and I get soft, and you know I float along, and it's going okay. But there was one time, there was one place that we went in on this vacation where uh, the water was rough, it was very deep immediately, and I was really scared. And I realized, and then there was a slight current. I'm a very weak swimmer, which is one of the reasons I'm afraid of of water. And I realized I was just really scared and that there was a difference between overcoming this fear that is sort of an endemic, I'm afraid of water, and the fear that had to do with, this is unsafe. (laughs) This is actually unsafe. And I got out of the water. So we're not talking about staying with something that's unsafe or that's going to harm you. But can you be with what is uncomfortable? What does it feel like to be with what's uncomfortable? I'm not even prescribing that you stay with something that's uncomfortable. But I am suggesting that learning what the experience is can be very useful. To experience the ability to stay with what's uncomfortable, admit that you're uncomfortable, And know what that is. Because there is freedom there. There is easing around the tightness. Very often, not wanting to be with something that's uncomfortable is not wanting to be with ourselves. So sometimes, um, uh, so, so, I may find myself in a conversation with someone where it's not going well. We're talking past each other, or uh, things are escalating, and the energy level is changing, and it's, it's uncomfortable. And it's not my intention for it to be that kind of conversation. So 
I can feel myself getting irritated, maybe developing a little ill will toward this person. Why are they doing this? Why are they all, they're always doing this? I hear the stories start. And then I have to, I have to figure out what I'm going to do because, because ill will is there. It's there. Now, I, I don't want it there. I don't want to think of myself as somebody that has those kinds of thoughts, but it's there. So what do I do? You know, sometimes we think that if we admit something is present, if I admit I'm angry, that it's just going to get bigger because I'm going to feed it. But admitting that it's there does not mean that I'm going to feed it. Admitting that I'm fearful about something doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to feed it. I can feed it by, by telling myself stories. You know, I, can, I can say, oh, this always happens, this happened before, this, this is going to happen in the future. That puts energy into that experience. But just saying the current experience right here in this room, that's different. It's useful to learn the difference. Now I'm uncomfortable. So we accept that we're uncomfortable. We're not encouraging or discouraging it. We're acknowledging it. And when we do that, we're free to discover something else about it. It changes. What this person from Germany told me is that he found a softening, an easing around the discomfort of the restlessness. It was like it was... It was really magnificent to discover that he could be restless and not need to change it. That that amount of easing was really interesting. This kind of learning encourages to think about where we fight our battles. You know, if we were going to be perfect, we would be very busy. Just about everything that arises would have us having to do something. So one of the things I'm learning is uh, when to just stop. Just stop. So in the example of, of uh, a, a blooming argument or unskillful conversation, I've learned that I can just stop. Now in the past I thought, you know, if you just stop you have to explain why you're stopping. You have to tell somebody, well, this isn't going anywhere for me. I have to stop. But the truth is you can just stop. And usually the conversation, which tends to be one-sided at that top point, keeps going. You don't have to explain. I don't have to explain. So it doesn't make the ill will go away. But because I've stopped, I'm not putting more energy into the discussion And the urge to retort or complain still leaves, is still there. And I, 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 you know, okay, it's here. Okay, it's here. And then just wait and see what happens. It surprises me what happens. It surprises me. Because my forward movement is so strong, I'm pretty sure I know where it's going to go, and it doesn't. <laughs> because I didn't, I didn't go there. <laughs> I just stopped. So sometimes, uh, so, so it means giving in the need to be right, right? So, so if I'm in a discussion, I, you know, I know I'm right. I could help this person if they just listen to me. the first thing I have to do is give up my need to be right before I can help them. <laughs> just doesn't work that way. <laughs> I had this experience yesterday. I'm still, I'm still regretful that I didn't see that sooner, that I didn't stop sooner. I was really trying to help. <laughs> but this was a case where intention was not aligned with what was true. What's true? It wasn't going to go there. No matter how hard I was pushing it that direction, it wasn't going to go there. And I needed to stop. So another thing that we kind of get stuck on is the lure of the peaceful. Well, 
if I'm going to be equanimous, I have to be peaceful. I have to be calm. And so we expect everything. We, we have this, this, this uh, uh, not an expectation so much as an idealism that things should be a certain way. I should be equanimous, and equanimous means that I never lose my balance. So when something comes in that threatens us, if we can't be balanced, we're introducing anxiety. We're, it, we're, we're making it a centerpiece because we have an ideal about how we should be reacting to this, this occasion. And it's, it's a kind of, so that we think that every time we deviate from peacefulness that it's, it's a failure. But that's not true. Equanimity has to do with seeing what is true and staying with what is true. Not feeding unskillful actions, but also not pushing away what is true. So, so when we're trying to maintain balance, we find ourselves spending a lot of time getting entangled in fixing, arranging, adjusting, which is feeding that sense of, I'm not good enough, I'll never be good enough, I can't, I, I failed again. And, and then we have a blossoming into this, this place of self-judgment and anxiety that we're kind of hooked in. What seems to be true is that we have these well-worn paths that our mind takes. And we're, we're rolling along, rolling along, we hit the rut, we're in that rut. doesn't matter how skillful we are when we hit that rut, we're going to have some adjustments. On the other hand, if you're riding a bicycle and you're constantly adjusting, you're going to find yourself not being able to maintain your balance at all. You know? There's a certain ease that comes with, with the balance of knowing how the bike is moving and how your body is on the bike and you're just going. You don't have to be doing this. That's all, the, all the present moment is like that. Uh, we, have, we have a lot of expectations for what we should be doing with our present moment. But the most important thing is to see what is actually true. One of those things is to stay in the room. Staying in the room is my shortcut for not going outside and, and learning about something else. So sometimes I notice when I'm meditating that I'll, when I'm restless, I start trying to find the reason for the restlessness. That's out of the room. Right here in the room, I'm experiencing restlessness. Or um, I'll take, uh, uh, I do a lot of work with hospice people, and very often I'll find myself coming into someone's room and saying, Oh, this is just like so and so. That's out of the room. So-and-so is not in the room. Okay? Or I will... uh, I I have a tendency toward asthma, which I've spent most of my life pretending was not true. Recently, I had pneumonia, and um, it triggered asthma, pretty bad asthma, and so they put me on prednisone. I hate prednisone. I've never taken it before. It makes me really jangly. And what I've discovered is it's sometimes difficult, but the, my usual cues are wrong. Because of the, the pharmacological things that are going on in my body, I'll experience something and I'll say, oh, it's like this. And it's not like this. It's actually a function of how agitated the prednisone makes me. It makes me feel like I've had a lot of caffeine. Sometimes it gives you kind of an, elevator, an elevated feeling. And then you look around and realize it's not connected to anything and you crash. So um, I'm finding it very disorienting. And I'm constantly having to ask, what's, what's really happening? What's really happening? And staying in the room and not, not thinking I know what it is outside the room. This has a lot to do with staying with what's uncomfortable. Because my husband right now is having a hard time reacting to me. <laughs> And I'll think, what's wrong with him? <laughs> and then I remind myself that maybe it isn't him. Maybe it's me. 
and I have to I have to stay here in the room with all this uncomfortable feeling that's going on. And what I do, I have this mental picture of how to stay in the room. And I take, uh, this, this version of the Buddha doesn't have it, but very often you'll see a Buddha statue and Buddha is sitting cross-legged on the ground and he has his hand down. This symbol uh, is, is related to the stories around the night of his, envir- his enlightenment. And in the temptations that he faced during that time, there, uh, uh, the final thing he did before his enlightenment is he called on the earth. He t- touched it down and he said, I am here, Mara, which is the version of the tempter. I am here. I deserve to be here. And so I do that mentally. I touch the ground. When I'm finding it difficult to stay in the room with whatever is happening, It's just a feeling I have of my hand sort of turning over and touching the ground. And it helps me. It's a a mental trick I have for staying in the room. Don't go out there. Stay here. The last thing is what else is here? What else is here? This is kind of related to, if we go back to the prednisone story, okay, I'm feeling... It's not coffee. It isn't actually what's going on here. What else is happening? And really paying attention to what else is going on. So sometimes, for example, I may feel discomfort of... um, uh, Let's say I, I I have a feeling of discomfort due to feeling inadequate. All right? I can't fix this. Somebody wants something from me. I can't really do it. What else is here? Well, I'm a little embarrassed. I should be able to do this. So there's some embarrassment here. What else is here? And sometimes I find that whatever my first answer was, while not untrue, is not quite it. Why is this important? Because the first thing that comes to mind is where the ruts are. That's where your mind typically goes. I'm in the habit of doing this, right? So hunger is a good example. I'm very distrustful of being hungry because the question is, what am I really feeding? You know, it's really hard for me to go hungry. I have a lot of fat stores. (laughs) I'm not starving. But boy, there are times when I could tell you I'm really starving. It's just a way of feeding something. What am I feeding? What am I really, what's really happening here? What's going on? What's going on? Sometimes uh, it's very often a, a response to anxiety feeding. You know, I have a strong ice cream habit. Fortunately, I try not to keep ice cream. But it was noticing that that was my response to anxiety that I found interesting. So there is an intention to be skillful and the drive to be better than we are. And one is kind of a, a, a distortion of the other. Being skillful does not require us to be other than who we are. But if we have this ideal that we're leaning toward, instead of what's happening here, it becomes much more difficult. So another thing that my friend Dan said is, um, he was talking about what, it mean, what it's like to get older. And he said, because I like myself now, I care less about what others think. I liked that. Because I like myself now, I care less about what others think. There are lots of places to get tripped up around that. So I'm going to read you a poem by Galway Cannell called St. Francis and the Sow. You've probably heard this poem before, but it seems particularly fitting. So here it is. The bud stands for all things, even those things that don't flower. 
for everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. To put a hand on its brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely, until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch, blessings of earth on the sow. And the sow began remembering all down her thick length, from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of the tail, from the hard spininess spiked out from the spine down through the great broken heart to the blue milk and dreaminess spurting and shuddering from the 14 teats into the 14 mouths sucking and blowing beneath them, the long, perfect loveliness of Sal. Each of us comes to each moment with intentions and goodwill, goodwill for ourselves, basically. The question is whether we can see ourselves. Can we see ourselves? Can we see the moment? Can we see what is true when we don't bring all the other stuff into the room? My experience is when I am directly connected to my experience, it's really quite lovely. And it doesn't seem to matter whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. It simply is. That being connected to this moment changes everything. Thank you. Those are my thoughts. So, that was a lot. I spoke longer than I intended to. (laughs) Um, So what are your thoughts? Does this seem relevant to the subject of anxiety? Does it seem... Is there material here to work with? Hello. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, one of the... I mean, yes, there's a lot there (laughs) that you said. But I guess the thing that was most striking and helpful to me was the... um, the parallels between the, your discussion of equilibrium and equi- or, or equanimity, uh-huh. and I use and I in my head used the word equilibrium, um, in how the par- there's a parallel to the practice of meditation for me, which is, um, it, it's it's you know you're talking about like riding the bicycle, so or being perfect, there isn't a perfect meditation. When I'm meditating, it's bringing myself, constantly bringing myself back to the present because the left side of my brain is constantly chattering and supplying me with maybe worries sometimes or under, because I might be under-stimulated stimulation, whatever it is, you know. So, you, so the, the equanimity is in the bringing yourself back and that's the parallel that I saw. Yeah, that's beautiful. And... Yeah, it's beautiful because it keeps me wanting to keep meditating without judgment. You know, even though sometimes you go, well, how did I get here? Why, why did my mind wander off? The more I meditate, the less I try to understand why my mind wandered off. It's just that it did. Okay, and bring it back. And that's, that's what equanimity, a lot of what equanimity seems like. It's just bringing yourself back to the present moment, acceptance of what is right now. And, and I'll stop in a second, but the other thing that I, I go to is, I mean, I'm, I'm right now, in the present moment, I'm physically healthy. I, I'm not worried about anything, but I know, um, I know that at some point my body's going to break down, you know? And what I, what I hope for is that when I can recognize it, I can just say, well, that's part, that's just part of the process. That's just going to happen. And not grasp at what medication or what 
treatment or what surgery. I mean, and, and the thing is, the equilibrium or the equanimity around that is, to some extent, you want to take the right medication and get the right surgery. But you also need to know when it's, you're just grasping for something that's inevitable, you know, grasping for, to prevent something that's inevitable. And I think getting towards living at peace with that I'm going to die um, would be a nice thing, you know, to, to live my life that way. It would be a nice thing. <laughs> Thank you. Uh-huh. Take, for example, um, dealing with kind of the unknown mm-hmm. sort of things. If we can kind of box our experience and kind of uh, pick out different aspects. Sometimes we can search down through certain feelings, such as sweaty palms. Where is there really suffering in sweaty palms? And then, yet, there's a conceptual knowing of this is anxiety, this is arising because of it. So you can sometimes find a little bit of space in the unknown of like, how is this really arising? And, and that can kind of uh, get you a bit of distance from it and kind of recognizing that um, there's kind of a higher process going on and this isn't necessarily you creating this. Does that make sense at all? I, th- I think it makes sense. So, so what you're saying is what you notice is the sweaty palms, mm-hmm. but you don't necessarily have to go to the place of anxiety around spreading. You don't have to be responsible for the sweaty palms. Well, I mean, when this, the kind of painful experience of, okay, this is anxiety or a pain in my stomach right now, to take yeah. example. I'm also a little bit nervous little bit. speaking. <laughs> so I can kind of touch down the individual experience, studying it a bit more, and there's kind of the component of when it all comes together, these, it kind of has a point tingly feeling to it. Mm-hmm. So if I focus more on the, if I shift my awareness more to the direct experience, the narrative kind of, uh, which we create is like a function of time, mm-hmm. where the direct experience is just little points, uh, kind of like little sine waves that we're only aware of. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, we, if the awareness shifts to that, um, the pain, you're not as aware of the painful experience. And like one of the things I've like to been doing, like to do, is um, with painful experience, especially, is like, how bad is this as compared to like being on fire or burn? <laughs> you know, how how bad is that really? And we treat things like uh, cramps or stress in the back of our shoulders, and we get you know worked up about this. But if we compare it to some some really truly painful experience and how bad things can really, I mean, like this is this is silly. This is not how. This is not worth really getting worked up over. This is, this is really easy compared to really negative experiences. And I can even uh, find joy in that and kind of get the kind of heart and mind to open up to that experience. And, and even with the contemplation of, this is kind of almost like contemplation of a corpse, mm-hmm. uh, death contemplation, I, it kind of uh, will result in equanimity and kind of future um, bodily harm. Yeah, so, um, so there are many things that you said there. Uh, one of the, the really skillful things is to stick with the direct experience rather than the story that is feeding something else. Um, but you also said that uh, you compared whatever this feeling is to some other experience. That's actually leaving the room and is tricky. So... I, th- I think another way of looking at this, because I think what you are doing is quite skillful. So, uh, so the way that I approach that in a, a similar situation is I look at it and say, oh, there's this pain, this is a terrible pain, terrible pain. And I recognize that I'm calling it a terrible pain. But that in fact, I'm, not, I'm, I'm staying with the pain just fine. You know, there's, there's kind of this assumption. When you go to the place of, this is a not like being on fire, it's a, it's a, you're say, it's, it's a similar thing. You're saying, this pain isn't that great. That I'm, I'm creating how great this pain is. It's all created in the mind. And that's what you're doing by that comparison. But I invite you to try to stay in the room with it. Well, the point isn't to... Run away to no. I get that. Memory. I get that. Yeah. It, it's the manipulation of view. Is yes. 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 So, so uh, I think that's a really important point. That a large part of what your experience is is dependent on where you look. So, um, 
So if you are looking at the story, you're much more likely to get caught in the story. If you're looking at the physical thing that's happening, you're, if you're looking at the direct emotional thing that's happening, you're, you're staying in the room. There's a lot going on all the time in every moment. As I'm sitting here speaking, I'm trying to say, I'm trying to be reasonable about what I'm saying. I'm trying to be dharmic about what I'm saying. I'm conscious of my arms moving. I'm conscious of how I'm sitting here. Pretty soon, the number of things I'm paying attention to can drown out my ability to hear you, to hear my own voice, to be skillful. And where is the primary intention? When I'm here talking to you, my primary intention is not to look good, right? Because if I'm paying attention to that, I'm not going to be able to have this conversation with you. So all moments have this, where am I putting my attention? You can put your attention on the physical thing, which is a good way to bring yourself in the room. But you can also be paying attention to what is the attitude of my mind that I'm measuring this experience within. Am I, am I open to this experience? Am I closed to this experience? Am I afraid of this experience? Now, if I'm looking at that, I'm probably not going to be focusing on what is the physical experience. So it's both a skill and something to be aware of, that what you are experiencing is determined by where you're looking. It's one of those conditions, like the rain and what time I started. So thank you. That's, that's really good. Wait, uh, Kim has been waving her hand back here. So, uh, Sue, sorry. Yeah, this is Sue. <coughs> Sue. And Maria, thank you so much for coming so long way and have a great subject we talked about here. And uh, you covered from what to begin with, the anxiety, and then how to deal with it. It's really helpful And here. So, so the anxiety, it's like it's coming from the fear. It's fear, and it says, it says no self. It says no self, and then, why I fear? And then, this no self, I had experience of past life vividly. And then going after my, my after this body decayed, where this no self is going. And I see last past life the person I was dealing with very closely and I met him here and had it just convinced me that it's him. Exactly him, how he looked, how he had this this kind of a um, presence. His presence is exactly the same that I see last the experience. And then that convinced me this no self where is going. I feel like I'm going to carry the same state of me is carrying to the after decade that if there is next life, go carry on. So, who is this? Well, I have no answer for this. This is a mystery. This is a mystery. Um, I am aware of... I can only speak from my experience. So I'm aware of the person that I think I am in this moment... And I'm aware of the memory of the person I used to be, where I had constructed this image of self. My experience is that what I call myself, how I define myself, is a mental construct. And that many things are possible. I mean, there are physical limitations to what's possible. But the self part what characterizes this being is largely 
an accumulation of my past experiences, my opinions, my views, my mental habits, and that almost anything that I could say about this being, I could say is also not true. So what is it that moves into the next moment? I don't know. I don't know. But I don't worry about it. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. Yes, we'll take one. Woody Woody Allen once said that he doesn't mind dying, he just doesn't want to be there for it. (laughs) I get that. (laughs) And... Um, the reason I mention that is that there's a great difference between anxiety, pain, and suffering around um, are you going to um, be next online somewhere and um, uh, facing your own death and and many things in between. A lot of experiences um, bring with them huge amounts of suffering in the body and as somebody pointed out, um, there's practice necessary to live with that. But also, um, certain kinds of anxiety require that you, before you do anything, that you calm yourself, calm down, so that you can see and see clearly. Um, and that's very hard, especially uh, uh, chronic situation going on for, for a long time um, because the pain and inflammation, the physicality of the body is enormous, um, the suffering in it. Uh, it can easily overwhelm uh, it, the, the mind without a lot of training and a lot of care. You're absolutely correct. Uh, one of the uh, one of the reasons I chose some of the examples I did was in an effort to develop habits of experiencing in situations that are not so threatening. If the first time you try to stay with something uncomfortable is when you're staying with uh, uh, just being in the middle of an automobile accident. Yeah, that's going to be tough, you know. One of the one of the things that I said earlier was that I was coming to grips with the fact that I actually do suffer from asthma. And one of the reasons I've been so reluctant to admit that is that I've been unwilling to face that there's some likelihood that my life will end with my inability to breathe. I'm sure it's tied up with why I have trouble snorkeling. I mean, it all fits. So I practice going snorkeling to overcome my fear of not being able to breathe. And um, I I spent uh, the last afternoon of someone's life with her where she she was dying of lung cancer. And uh, she was much braver than I was. It was a really amazing experience for me to be with her She kept saying, please help me, and there was nothing I could do for her but be with her and stay with her through something that was truly excruciating. Excruciating. And I remember taking some deep breaths and letting them out slowly, and she said, stop that. (laughs) Okay, I get it. That was not useful. You know, um, uh, but I will never forget holding her body against mine and just being with her inability to breathe. And I hope that that will be useful to me someday. It isn't easy to face one's own death. Um, Because whatever we think about self and rebirth, the ego is really strong, and the desire to be is very strong. And the physical pain that goes with the way some people die is not to be trivialized. Or the mental pain, 
not to be trivialized. Or the anxiety that arises with, I could die at any minute. You know, people who have heart disease. After you've had a heart attack, everything changes. The, but, but living with that anxiety also changes. If you have constant reminders, um, you know, degenerative diseases like MS or Lou Gehrig's disease or, you know, any, any number of other things... That living with that kind of uncertainty with a known certain end is extremely difficult. The wisdom of practicing to make those mind habits, to grow the mind habits that makes that possible uh, guides me, encourages me. It's very hard to live with the anxiety of a degenerating body. It's difficult to get old sometimes. But it's, uh, it's better than the alternative, they say. So thank you all for this consideration. We're done. <laughs> May you all be happy in the present moment and well. Thank you. <laughs>